We continue our series through the Lord's Prayer, and we're coming this morning to the final request that we make to God for ourselves. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And as we saw last time, it's a request in two parts. Uh, We looked at the first part last week, and today we come to the second part, deliver us from the evil one. Now, our world isn't particularly impressed with this idea of the evil one or the devil or Satan. Who believes in the devil nowadays? But if we're honest, as we look around at our world, we'd have to admit that there's just a level of evil out there that cannot be explained outside of a belief in someone who seeks to steal and kill and destroy the human race even as Pete was sharing about child soldiers, for example. Uh, In the Alpha Course, which is an introduction to the Christian faith, one of the presenters, Toby Flint, tells the story of a man who came on an Alpha Course, and he was very intelligent and also extremely skeptical. He was an atheist, and nothing in the course convinced him otherwise until the group came to the talk, how can I resist evil? And at the end of the talk, the man said, I'm a lawyer, and in my practice as a lawyer, I see so much evil. I've always believed in the power of evil, but now I realize that if there is a power of evil, it's only logical to believe in a power of good. There must be a God. And in time, he became a Christian. So this morning, I'd like to spend a few moments considering the evil one from whom we ask to be delivered. And I'd like us to have a look at who he is, uh, what he does, and how we fight. Before we begin, though, let me just sound two notes of caution. Firstly, let me say something about our interest in the devil and demons. Uh, Clive Staples Lewis, who was a Cambridge professor and former atheist uh, back in the 1960s, wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, which consists of an imaginary correspondence between a senior demon and a junior demon. But in the introduction to that book, Lewis famously said this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That's so true. A great deal of teaching nowadays about the devil and the demonic seems to involve an awful lot of speculation. There are all kinds of theories about what demons can do and what they cannot do and the names of demons and spirits and different levels of demons, and very little of that has a basis in Scripture. We need to be extremely careful here and not go beyond what the Bible tells us. But on the other hand, there are those who don't pay any attention at all to the devil and live as though he doesn't exist or isn't dangerous. We need to recognize the gravity of the threat, as we'll see a little later. Uh, The Christian life is not a picnic or a walk in the park. It's a battle. 
As one pastor puts it, from cradle to grave, life is war. Your soul, your mind, your body, your family, your career, all are fields of conflict. The battle rages every day. We're in the thick of it. It's unhealthy to have too great an interest in the devil or to ignore him. The second word of caution that I'd like to make is that we need to treat the devil with respect, as indeed we are to respect all celestial beings. If we're to respect and honor all human beings, how much more are we to respect celestial beings who are so much greater than us, whether they be good or evil? Now, everyone in the Bible who had a genuine encounter with an angel was terrified. That's why the opening words of any angel to any human being in Scripture is always, do not be afraid. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul writes about a spiritual experience that he had of being caught up into the third heaven, and he says he heard inexpressible things that man is not permitted to tell. Contrast that attitude with many Christian preachers and teachers today who've got no problem telling you in great detail all of their encounters with angels. I've heard Christian leaders speak about angelic beings with a casualness and a flippancy that borders on blasphemy. The New Testament warns us against speaking lightly of angelic beings, and in particular, the devil. So in the book of Jude, right at the end of the New Testament, Jude warns his readers about false teachers, and he says this about them in verse 9. These dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and slander celestial beings. But even the angel, Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, didn't dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. Now, Jude is using an illustration from the apocryphal book, The Assumption of Moses, which is an interesting point in itself. But his main point here is that we're not to slander celestial beings or the evil one. And so with those two words of caution in mind, we will proceed carefully to speak about our enemy. Let's look firstly at, at who he is. Where did the evil one come from? And actually, the Bible says very little about this. We simply get hints here and there. One of those hints is found in 2 Peter 2, where we're told that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Some people look to Isaiah 14 to describe where the devil came from. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You said in your heart, I will make myself like the most high, but you're brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Uh, but if you read that passage in context, you'll see that it refers to the king of Babylon, uh, not to Satan. I do think, though, that C.S. Lewis has got a point in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says this, How did the dark power go wrong? Uh, here, no doubt, we ask a question to which human beings cannot give an answer with any certainty. A reasonable and traditional guess, based on our own experience of going wrong, can, however, be offered. The moment you have a self at all, there is a possibility of putting yourself first, wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin that he taught to the human race. 
It is also important to recognize that Satan is a created being. You know, in Persian theology, there's the concept of dualism. In other words, you have two equal and opposite forces battling it out uh, for uh, control. That's not Christian theology. Only God is eternal and all-powerful. The devil is merely a created being who's limited in power. And that's important to remember. So, firstly, who he is. Secondly, let's have a look at what he does, which is the primary focus of the scriptures and what affects us more personally as well. The first way in which he acts is very familiar to us. He tempts us. And none of us this morning need much explanation of this. We know all about it. And encouragingly, as we saw last week, so does Jesus. Throughout his earthly life, he was tempted. And so the writer to the Hebrews tells us that Jesus has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Second thing that the devil does is that he accuses us. In fact, that's what the name Satan means, the accuser. In Revelation chapter 12, remember, we read that Satan is described as the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night. There's a wonderful picture of this in the little-known book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet has a vision, and he says this, Then the messenger showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you. So the context here is it's after the exile to Babylon for 70 years. The people of Israel have come back into the land. The temple is demolished, and they want to start the priesthood again. But here is Joshua, the high priest, and he's a sinful man. He's been living in a foreign nation. They don't have any of the purification ceremonies left. He's standing here in sin, sin represented by these filthy garments. And Satan comes and accuses him and tries to remind him and all the people of his sin. And yet God comes and washes Joshua clean and says, See, I have taken away your sin. And the devil does the same thing to us as well. He'll come to us and say, Call yourself a Christian. How can you be a Christian and do that? Boy, if everybody knew what you'd done, they would never allow you to stand up and preach. And we can be become discouraged and we despair. The third thing that the devil does is that he deceives us. In John chapter 8, Jesus speaks to some of the Jewish leaders who are opposing him, and he says this. He says, you belong to your father the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire and kill me. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
At the very first time we read of the ancient serpent, the devil, is in Genesis 3, where the snake comes to Eve and places doubt in her mind. Did God really say, you will not surely die? And of course, in one sense, the snake spoke the truth. On the day that they ate the fruit, Adam and Eve did not physically drop dead, but they died in a far more awful way. Their rebellion sent a seismic shockwave throughout the entire created order that continues to, till today. But the worst lies from the devil are those that are 90% true but contain 10% error. And he still disguises himself as an angel of light trying to deceive us and throw us off course. He lies to us about the true reality of things and of who we are and of who God is. And finally, we can say that the evil one kills. In John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus describes his ministry in contrast to that of the devil. He says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Satan wants to take you out, and he will use everything in his, at his disposal to do that. We have an enemy in whom there is nothing good. But let's move on. Having looked at who he is and what he does, let's look thirdly at how we fight. How do we fight the evil one? Well, for that, I think we need to turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 10 through 18. Paul's a typical preacher. He says, finally, even though he's still going to go on for a couple of more sentences, but he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Now, we don't have time to look at all of that. <laughs> You've heard me preach on this passage before, but let me pick out a few things, especially as they relate to what we've already looked at. I think that in days gone by, I would have, asked, I would have answered the question, how do we fight the evil one? And I would have given four steps to fighting the devil. But actually, if we ask the question, how do we fight the evil one? The answer is simply, we don't. Someone else has fought him and won, and we simply share in his victory. Paul begins by telling us, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Our enemy is defeated. Paul writes in Colossians 2, and he says that the Lord Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You know, that little phrase, the armor of God, 
means the armor belonging to God. And in the Old Testament, we see God taking up this armor to act and save his people. So in Isaiah 59, speaking about the coming Messiah, we read that the Lord put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. In other words, God doesn't give us this armor and then send us off on our own. Jesus has worn this armor ahead of us. One writer puts it like this. Jesus wore God's armor all the way to the cross. Jesus stood firm against Satan's schemes throughout his earthly life and ministry. Each of those specific temptations to which we have given into this week, lust, gossip, anger, pride, self-exaltation, lying, coveting, is a temptation he faced and stared down in your place. What is more, Jesus laid his life down at the cross for you. Because of his victorious life, death, and resurrection, the same power that raised Christ up from the dead is now at work inside you and me through the ongoing work of the Spirit, raising us from spiritual death to new life. Christ has won the battle for us, and daily we take up his armor. Second, notice the breastplate of righteousness. Whose righteousness? My own? No, Jesus' righteousness that is credited to me by faith. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As we've seen, when I fall into sin, the accuser comes to me and says, call yourself a Christian. You're nothing but a loser. You're an adulterer. You're a thief. You're a glutton. You're a drunkard. You're an addict. You're lustful. You're a liar. And again, in one sense, he's right. But Jesus stands before the judgment seat of God, and he says, Father, the accuser is right. Andrew has sinned. He is guilty. He deserves punishment. Blood should be shed. Here it is. I died for that sin. And it would be unjust for you to ask for payment, two payments, for the same offense. I've paid it. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. You know, when we sin, we often go off for a few days and we hide from God. Uh, maybe we don't have a quiet time or we skip church, we skip Bible study, we wait until we think God will feel a little bit better about us. But that's madness, A, because we can't hide from God, but B, because I don't have to add my feeling bad about my sin for a few days in order for God to forgive me. I don't have to add my feeling bad about sin to Christ's finished work for me. I'm sure I will feel bad, and feeling bad isn't wrong, but in that very moment when I realize I've sinned and fallen short, when I suddenly realize in horror how I've hurt his heart, I don't have to turn away from him and hide. In that very moment of realization, I can run into the arms of God. For this I have Jesus, 
for this very moment, I have Jesus. And I hold on to Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When we truly recognize what it means to stand before God dressed in Christ's righteousness, it radically changes our lives. Notice thirdly, the belt of truth and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. If the devil is a liar, then I need to arm myself with the truth. And as Jesus prayed in John 14, your word is truth. Remember how when Jesus was tempted, each time he used God's word to defend himself. I need to be in God's word. I need to be reading books about God's word. In the words of Philippians, I need to be meditating on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, I need to be thinking about such things. I know that we can't all stop watching movies or television series or YouTube clips, but we need to be careful. If I'm spending two hours a day watching lies and only five minutes a day in God's truth, I'm going to get myself into some trouble. Fourthly, notice the readiness to share the gospel. Paul says, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And of course, there's that very interesting verse in the book of Revelation, which speaks about those who overcome the evil one. And it says this, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, that's Christ's righteousness, and by the word of their testimony. In other words, telling others the good news about Jesus, testifying to what we've just spoken about, his righteousness in our lives, solidifies our faith and helps us overcome the evil one. And then finally, this prayer. Paul says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. How, how do I know if I'm being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power? Well, it's by how much I pray. Uh, if I believe that I can handle my problems on my own and I've got my own resources and intelligence, then I won't pray. However, if I'm being strong in the Lord and in his strength, uh, then I'll be praying. I'll be recognizing that actually I'm poor and weak and failed and flawed and I need his mighty power. And of course, one of the prayers that we pray then on a regular basis is this, lead me not into temptation but deliver me from the evil one. Just one final thing as we close. Uh, Paul ends his description of the armor of God in verse 18 by saying, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. It's just a reminder to me that I'm not alone in some private spiritual conflict, but that we fight together as brothers and sisters in this battle. That Roman shield that Paul speaks about was, wasn't just one of those little round things. It was a great big thing about the size of the door. And uh, the Romans would hold their shield in front and behind and on all sides sometimes. They would use it together uh, to form the famous Roman testudo or tortoise. Uh, it was a structure so strong that sometimes they would test the testudo by driving a horse and chariot on top of it. 
wonderful picture of soldiers with shields in front and behind and on both sides and, and even on top. We're strong when we fight this battle together. And so may I encourage you, as we've already seen in our worship service, to keep on building community. We get to do that on a big scale on a Sunday morning over coffee as we chat together, but it's best done in smaller groups during the week. Are you part of a small community that can pray for you and encourage you and keep you accountable? Community is so important. We fight this battle together. And so, brothers and sisters, let us be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Let us put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. And after we've done everything, to stand.